Amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Before we turn to our passage this morning, let us uh, pray and ask the Lord to uh, bless us with this time. Lord, as we come before you, uh, Lord, we thank you that you are the same God. Uh, Lord, we ask that through the Spirit of God that you would reveal uh, the truths that we need to hear today. Uh, Lord, through the same Spirit, Lord, give us desire and power to live in those truths. Uh, Lord, remind us uh, each and every day and throughout the day uh, of our great need uh, for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the finished work of Christ on the cross. And thank you for the tremendous love of our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you would open your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, we're going to pick up where Pastor Tommy left off uh, last week. Last week, Pastor Tommy covered uh, verses 121 through 128 of Psalm 119. He did an amazing job. This week, we're going to pick up on verses 129 through 136. If you're joining with us on campus uh, this morning and you do not have a copy of God's Word, I would encourage you to look underneath the seat in front of you or underneath the seat that you're sitting in. There should be a blue Bible there. I would encourage you to take that Bible, open up to page 572, 572. We're in the middle of a sermon series entitled, uh, His Word, uh, My Anchor. And uh, we are in our 17th message, if you can believe it. Uh, we are almost uh, getting to the finish line. We will go all the way through uh, part 22, so we still have about five more to go. And the reason why we've done what we've done is uh, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. It's 176 verses, but the way that God and his wisdom and grace uh, unfolded that particular chapter uh, for us and through the psalmist is he broke those 176 verses up into 22 different stanzas. Uh, Each stanza incorporated of eight verses each. It's a poem, and we don't know who the psalmist is. We don't know uh, the very uh, exact context and what what he's writing, but we do know that at the very heart of that particular chapter, at the very heart of the psalm, is the beautiful, powerful, faithful word of the Lord. And so what we've done every week, and we'll do it again this morning, is we'll look at this particular stanza in the original language, the Hebrew language. Again, the Hebrew language is written right to left, and so this particular stanza begins with the Hebrew letter Pei, but not only is the stanza identified by that particular Hebrew letter, but each verse in that particular stanza begins with that same Hebrew letter. And so it's a way for God's people to memorize the importance of God's word. Now this Hebrew letter Pei, Uh, means mouth. And what we find in Psalm 119 in this particular stanza is it's more specifically the, the open mouth. And so here is uh, the psalmist. The psalmist is hungry, right? He needs spiritual nourishment. He needs his soul to be nourished. And where does he go? He goes to uh, the word of the Lord. It's the Lord himself that he said that man cannot live on bread alone, but only on every word that comes from his mouth. And that's what the psalmist is teaching us over and over and over again. Roughly 98% of the verses in this chapter are correlated in some way to the word of the Lord. And so it's an important reality for us. And here what the psalmist does is the psalmist is going to show us Uh, characteristics of what it looks like uh, in the life of a believer, and we'll bring it to the New Testament, to those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, what does it look like to to really uh, have a desire to, to grow and mature in your walk with the Lord? And that's where the psalmist is. The psalmist is going to peel back and show us three specific ways and, and, and characteristics of, of a person who truly desires to be fed by the word of the Lord, right? And that's important. So let's read, uh, I'll read the passage in its entirety and then we'll unpack it beginning in verse 129 all the way through 136. The scripture says, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as your way with those who love your name. 
Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. And so the psalmist, again, is gonna give us three amazing characteristics of, in, in New Testament language, a follower of Christ who desires to spiritually be nourished by the Lord and to grow and mature in their walk with the Lord. The first characteristic is a genuine love for God's truth. A genuine love for God's truth. We see this in verses 129 through 131. Beginning in verse 129, the scripture says, your testimonies are wonderful. That's a great word to underline, wonderful. Therefore, my soul uh, keeps them. Now think about the word wonderful for just a moment. Uh, Let's go back to May 21st, 1921. I can't do that, but Google can. So praise God for that, right? And on May 21st, 1921, there was a article that was written in the Indianapolis, Indiana uh, newspaper. And all it said was wonder was coming. A few days later on May 24th, 1921, wonder hit the shelves all across uh, the country. Does anybody know what it was? I'll show you a picture of it. Maybe, yeah. Wonder bread, right? Wonder bread, yeah. Wonder bread came uh, into the world, right? Uh, for the first time, in a, in, a, in a big sense, sliced bread was available to all. Now, sliced bread was available in small little pockets, but for the first time, it went on really a global uh, scale. Uh, at the time, it was said to have this, bleached white flour being sugar heavy and nutritionally enriched. Now, that's a beautiful combination, right? How is it possible that you can be sugar heavy but nutritionally enriched? By the 1950s, people were eating approximately, per person, approximately a loaf of bread a week, right? 30% of their daily calories were taken up by what? Bread, right? The slogan in the 1950s was building strong bodies, right? Because why? It incorporated protein, B1, B2, and calcium. However, over time, we finally figured out what was truly behind Wonder Bread, right? It wasn't so wonderful, right? So the slogan began to change from build strong bodies to feed your joy, feed your joy. Now that makes better sense, right? When you realize the things that are in there aren't that great, you're really just feeding in our way, the desires of the flesh. And here's the whole point. No matter how wonderful wonder bread may be, right? No matter how wonderful things in this world may seem to be or may be, all of it pales in comparison to the wonder of the Lord himself, right? It is the Lord. He is the one, the only one that brings life out of death. He's the one that is truly our ultimate joy. He is our wonderful counselor. Isaiah, right, tells us that he is our wonderful counselor. God's one and only son, Jesus Christ, right? He's not the one who sells bread. He's the one that saves souls, right? Praise be to God for that. And so when we think about this word wonder, and in, in the Hebrew, it's plural. So it's talking about wonders, so wonderful, wonders. Uh, when the psalmist speaks of it, he, he's talking about something that is supernatural, something that is extraordinary, something that is outside of human capability. It's miraculous and it's free of error. And the question is, for us as followers of Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, when we come to the word of the Lord, do we see it as something that is wonderful, something that is miraculous, something that is beyond human capability? Something that just grabs and rips at the core of who you are. It gets that kind of attention. Or have you forgotten? 
you know, when you think about Asaph, Asaph being the chief worship leader of the day, uh, he says this in Psalm 77, verse 11. He says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. And then he goes on to say in verse 14, you are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. And the context of this particular chapter is amazing because Asaph is experiencing deep, dark days. His heart is troubled beyond comparison. And what does he go to? What is it that he wants his soul to be gripped by? It's the wonders of the Lord. The psalmist knows that God's faithfulness in his life and in the life of his people is wonderful. It's wonderful in power. It's wonderful in provision and protection and deliverance and presence and compassion, mercy and love. And maybe you've come here this morning and you're thinking, yeah, that's great for the psalmist. That's great for the people of old. But what does the wonder of God have to do with me today? Man, I got great news for you today. The wonder of God reminds you and reminds me that God truly does know us. Psalm 139, amazing chapter. We'll look at those first six, six verses. The scripture says, oh, Lord, this is David writing. Oh, Lord, uh, you have searched me and known me. Right? So God knows our heart, right? That's comforting and scary at the same time, right? Not only that, the scripture says in verse two, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. So he knows all of our actions. Again, comforting and scary at the same time. Verse four, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So he knows our words. Again, comforting and scary at the same time. Verse five, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. So he knows our days and he has, guess what? He has authority every, over every single one of them. And then verse six, the psalmist David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. You think about it. When you think about your life, God knows it, he sees it, he hears it, he knows all those things, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the wonder above all wonders is that he loves you. And he loves me. The cross of Jesus Christ is the proof. And when the, the apostle Paul just considers the wonderful gift of salvation that, that God truly has a heart for the nations, he gets caught up in a hymn of praise in Romans eleven thirty three, where he says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So I ask you, have you lost the wonder? Have you lost that love for God's truth? Have you allowed the circumstances of your life to overshadow the wonder of God's amazing truth? It's, it's time for the church to rediscover the beauty of God's word. You see, all of us are prone to wonder, right? That's why the psalmist has already said in verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The scripture in the Hebrew says, Lord, if you do not open my eyes, Lord, I need you to do this, right? If you don't reveal it to me, I will miss out on the very spiritual insights that my soul is longing for. In other words, remove all the blinders that in, impede me, affect me, prohibit me from seeing what you want me to see. You know, all of us have a past, right? That, that affects the way that we see the word of the Lord. All of us have present circumstances. That affects the way that we see the word of the Lord. 
All of us have things that we're longing for and searching for and asking for things in the future, things that are just beyond our grasp. And all those things have a way of doing what? Affecting the way that we see the word of the Lord. And so the scripture is reminding us, Lord, Lord, open our eyes. Why is that important? Verse 130, the psalmist says, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. So in other words, the psalmist is saying, Lord, I need you to do a divine eye operation on me, right? That's what he's saying. Why? Because it, it unfolds, uh, the word of the Lord unfolds and gives light, imparts understanding to the simple. So think about that word unfolding for a minute. It means to bring clarity. It means to bring uh, illumination. Think about Old Testament times. People are uh, living in tents and the only light that would come in other than a, like a lamp or something like that would be uh, the tent door when it would open up, right? And so as the tent door, the entrance of that home opened up, then light began to shone inside of it. And so that's what the scripture is saying. That's what the psalm is saying. Lord, if you do not reveal it, I will not be able to see it. We see a picture of this in Luke 24. We've seen this over and over again, but just an amazing reminder of the importance of God's work in revealing the word of the Lord to us. Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he's on the road to Emmaus. He joins with those two guys. Those two guys don't know who he is. But after that encounter, uh, Jesus reveals those wonders to them. And this is what they say in verse 32 of Luke 24. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he did what? He opened to us the scriptures. He brought about revelation. He brought about illumination. And then later on in that same chapter, uh, Jesus is with the other disciples in verses 44 through 45. The scripture says, Then he, speaking of Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Verse 45, Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. How is it that their hearts burned? How is it that their minds were open? It's because the Lord did it, right? What a tremendous reminder to us. Praise God that the Lord imparts understanding to the simple. The word simple can mean young, immature. Uh, it also means open-minded, humble. Again, the qualification to get understanding and revelation from the Lord has very, I mean, very little to do with your intellect, right? It has everything to do with your heart. And that's what the scripture is teaching us. You open your heart to the Lord like a child, dependent, solely dependent on him, and he will reveal truth after truth after truth. Man, let that sink in. God's desire and capability to reveal truth to you is about the heart, your heart before him. Consider the words, the wonderful words of the Lord. Psalm 119, a great parallel passage. I'm sorry, Psalm 19, yeah, verse seven through nine. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Man, what a beautiful passage about the word of the Lord. For every child of God, every single day, we must ask the Lord, Lord, every day, make the word of God be wonderful to me. You can't show up in your Bible time with the Lord and just expect it's gonna happen, right? In dependency, go before the Lord. Lord, make it wonderful to me. Why? Because there's so many distractions, right? So many, we're distracted by the time, the sounds, our stomach, 
all those different things. Lord, make it wonderful to me. Make it wonderful uh, to me. The psalmist says in verse 131, he says, open my mouth and he says, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Uh, the word open here means to open wide with great eagerness. The word pant describes someone who is dying of thirst and has a, a deep desire for water. Now, most of us aren't dying for thirst, right? We may be thirsty because we just exercised or maybe we're thirsty because we had too, too much MSG for lunch, right? Those are the reasons primarily why we may get thirsty. But here is the psalmist. The psalmist is thirsty for the word of the Lord. Why? Because he loves it. The scripture says that he has a deep thirst for the word of the Lord. It's the same word that is found in Psalm 63 verse 1 where the scripture says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul does what? My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David is experiencing a time. It's the context of this chapter. David is experiencing a time where he feels like God is far off. Where, where he, he, in his mind, he's not experiencing the hand of God on his life, right? You ever been there before? Just, God just seems to be far off. And, and here is David. David is experiencing the quote-unquote silence of the Lord. And what is it that his heart craves for? What is it that his soul longs for? The Lord. Even in the midst of that. The question is, do we long for the word of the Lord like that? Do we love God's word in that manner? Now, what gets in the way of that? There are many, many things, but I do think it's important to recognize and to uh, be honest about some of the main things that cause us to have a lack of love and wonder for the word of the Lord. It's sin, right? And when Peter is writing to the early church, they're in exile and he's talking about holiness and he's talking about the things that they should be feeding their souls. He addresses that. He says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, he says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So th these are sins of the heart, right? That's where they begin. So you think about malice, your desire to hurt someone with your words or deeds. You think about deceit, a desire uh, to gain something uh, uh, over somebody through lying. You think about hypocrisy, it's putting on a show. You think about envy, you, you want something that somebody else has, so you resent them. Or you think about slander. You know, the reason why, the main reason why we slander is because we don't want to acknowledge our own failings, right? And so Peter is addressing all these things, all these desires on the inside, and he's saying, stop feeding those things. Verse 2, he says, like newborn infants, long, the word long there is crave, crave for the pure spiritual milk. That's referring to the word of the Lord. And again, God's word is not so much appealing to our minds, but he does, Romans 12, 1 and 2, he's more so appealing to what? Our hearts. In other words, stop your heart from feeding on malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and feed on God's truth. Love the word of the Lord. Why? He goes on to say that by it, you may grow up into salvation. That word grow up, the phrase grow up, is the same phrase that John the Baptist uses uh, early on in the, the Gospel of John when he talks about how the, uh, the Lord uh, must increase and he must decrease, right? So there's a humility side of there. And then he says in verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So on one hand, verse 3 is telling us you can't crave what you do not know, right? You can't crave what you do not know. And for some, Religion and ritual has been your encounter with the Lord. I don't know about you, but if all I had was ritual and religion, I would not crave it. But until you taste that the Lord is good, you will fail to crave the thing that is worth craving. On the other hand, you can't crave something if you lose sight of what you already know, right? I mean, have you ever had a, an experience where uh, you sat down and ate something and it's been years since you had it and the 
second that that hits your mouth, you're like, it's like bringing back all that experience from the past. Oh yeah, this is great. Or maybe something really bad too, right? The scripture is teaching us, like, if you, if you, if you as a child of God, that's the context of what Peter is writing to. If you're going to feed your soul with all the sins of the flesh, guess what? You're going to lose sight of the thing that's most important, right? What your soul really needs to be craving. And Peter is writing about holiness to the early church, and he's teaching us that the closer we come to Christ, the more he replaces our desires for his. This is why we read the word of the Lord. This is why we study the word of the Lord, pray the word of the Lord, crave the word of the Lord, apply the word of the Lord, obey the word of the Lord, praise the word of the Lord, rest in the word of the Lord, encourage one another with the word of the Lord, confront our very sins with the word of the Lord. Why? Because we need the word of the Lord to reach the depths of our hearts. Why? That's where the gospel needs to change our lives. So the characteristic that the psalmist talks about about growing and hungering for the Lord is a genuine love for God's truth the second characteristic that he talks about is a desperate need for God's provision a desperate need for God's provision we see this in verses 132 uh, through 135 Uh, the psalmist is going to pray and he's going to have four requests in this amazing prayer Uh, the first request he has is God be gracious to me God be gracious to me we see that in verse 132 turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name so when the psalmist is talking about uh, turning uh, to me, he's, he's asking the Lord to draw near to him. He's asking the Lord for personal attention. Uh, he's asking the Lord for undivided attention from the Lord. Uh, and he's pleading for the Lord to show what? Talked about uh, grace. That's a word that means compassion. He's asking the Lord to be compassionate to him. Why? Because he knows that his deepest needs can only be met where? By the grace and compassion of the Lord. David writes about this in Psalm 86, verse 16. He says, turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. So David in his weakness is turning to the Lord. Why? For strength. He needs the Lord to show compassion and give him strength. So when we think about this idea of God being gracious to us and giving us what we need, we see this throughout the Psalms. Uh, To the one who needs help, cry out to the Lord, Psalm 30, verse 10. To the one who needs healing, cry out to the Lord, Psalm 6, verse 2. To those who are afflicted, cry out to the Lord, Psalm 9, verse 13. To the lonely, cry out to the Lord, Psalm 25, verse 16. To the grieving, cry out to the Lord, Psalm 31, verse 9. To those who have sinned, cry out to the Lord, Psalm 41, verse 4. The scripture is reminding us over and over and over again, turn to the Lord, turn to the Lord, turn to the Lord. Why? Because though we do not deserve it, there is an amazing fountain of overflowing grace. He is the one that gives us strength for the journey. So the prayer, God, give, be gracious to me. The second prayer he gives is, uh, give me victory over my sin. Verse 33, 133, he says, keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. The verb tense of keep steady my steps is important. Uh, the verb tense is talking about something that only the Lord can do. So he says, cause my steps to be st- steady. Uh, Lord, I need you to do this, right? He's saying, I don't need my steps to be steadied and and give stability based on uh, how I feel or or what I see or what my own desires are or what my comforts are or or what those around me who are even closest to me say. I need my steps to be established by you. I need them to be anchored by your very promises, right? It, It is the Lord that establishes our steps, though we plan, right? Look at Proverbs 6, uh, 16, verse 9. The scripture says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes steps. Is God saying don't plan? No, absolutely. The key is what? Put God in the center of all those planning, right? But even in the midst of that, you can have the right motives, the right desires, and yet God has a different plan, right? Have you, have you realized that in life? We need the Lord to establish our steps. 
We need the Lord to establish firmly every step that we take. Why? Because the psalmist says, let no iniquity get dominion over me. Lord, the path that you set before me is beautiful. It is amazing. It is good. But on that path, there are things around me, things that try to tempt me, things that try to deceive me, to take me away from uh, honoring you. And I desire more than anything else to honor you. And here's the sad reality. Any sin, no matter how small it is, has the potential of dominating your life at the very first step, right? That's what the psalmist is teaching us. And he's talking about his need for depending on the Lord for victory. Uh, The psalmist writes in Psalm uh, chapter 19, verses 12 through 13, this is an amazing passage. He says, who can discern his errors? I I can't, right? You can't, only the Lord can. Uh, and, And to that question, the psalmist says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. So that's an important phrase, hidden faults. Verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. That's a great phrase to underline, presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So uh, the psalmist says, Lord, forgive me for those things that I don't even recognize as sinful, right? Those are those hidden faults. How many of us have those? Oh yeah, I'm, you guys must be living in the dark. Yes, we all have them, right? But then he talks about those presumptuous sins. Lord, stop me from giving myself over to the things that I know are sinful. One of the things that I think happens in life, especially when it's wave after wave after wave, right? And you may not verbalize this. Some people do but it's in there somewhere. You get to a place in life and, and all that, 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 that work, we'll call it, that dedication, devotion to the Lord, and you, you get to the end of the day and it's, it's like worse and worse and worse. And you get to a place where you just say, I don't even care anymore. I just, I'm just gonna give up. I know it's wrong, but I'm gonna do it anyway. Maybe you live in a different scenario. But I I meet with people frequently that I know love the Lord. But they have been crushed by so many things in life. And that's what they'll say. I, I just don't even know if it's worth it. And though they know it's wrong, they, though they know it's a sin against the Lord, there, there is a temptation to say, what does it matter anymore? And it's in those moments that we need to recognize it, it is the Lord who gives us victory over the sin. That person is not strong enough. I'm not strong enough. And so when it comes to our hidden faults or our presumptuous sins, you gotta recognize that you're, you don't have, you're not the one that has victory over sin. It is the Lord through you that has victory over your sin. Jesus is our only hope. He is our sinless savior. Look to the cross and hate your sin and look to the cross to see your sin paid for. That is the beauty of the gospel. We have been changed by the blood of Christ. We are new creatures in Christ. Paul writes in Romans 6, verse 12 through 14, let no sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Uh, do not present your members to, uh, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under what? You're under grace. That is the word. You're under grace. Though sin is strong, God's grace is stronger, right? That is the point of the passage. The reality is that though We have a new king on the throne of our heart, the throne of our life. There's still someone who attacks it day after day after day, right? Satan still desires to kill, still and destroy. 
Though the devil was defeated at the cross, he did not go home. And he will attack relentlessly. Your emotions, your mind, your thought pattern, all those different things. He seeks to rob you of the joy and blessings that you already have in Christ. He desires to take your new life in Christ and ever so slightly bend it back to your old self. Why? Because he knows every degree of bend will ultimately take you way off track, right? That's what he knows. And that's why we need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, give me what I need for victory over my sin, right? Your weapon of choice should be the grace of God every single day. And I'm putting my faith in what he has said about me. So not only does the Lord forgive me, but he illuminates the path before me so that I will be aware of the obstacles, right? I mean, think about this for just a minute. We, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have tremendous freedom in this life. Praise God. But over and over again, especially the Apostle Paul, he talks about do not leave, don't, don't allow your freedom to lead you to selfishness, right? And I think one of the passages that gives us some great clarity here is found in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. And I'll use some words that help us understand it. Uh, Paul is addressing uh, the early church in Corinth, and he says this. He says, you say, so he's repeating what they say. You say, all things are lawful for me. I have freedom in all those things. But Paul says, not all things are helpful, right? You say, all things are lawful for me, but I, Paul say, I will not be dominated by anything. What's Paul's point? Paul says, yes, we have tremendous freedom in this life. But that doesn't mean that you are to partake in every freedom that is before you, right? You have to acknowledge your own, your own drift towards the flesh. You have to understand the calling that God has put on your life. So though that freedom may be enjoyed by another brother or sister in Christ, that freedom may not be enjoyed for you. Why? Because you've got to understand that the grace of God overshadows everything that this world has to offer. And Paul says, even the good things of this world, I do not want to be dominated by. I only want to be dominated by who? Jesus Christ, my Lord. So does the Lord dominate you today? Or is there something that you have maybe even freedom in that is overtaking you? Don't let even the good things dominate you. Only let Christ dominate you. The third prayer request he has is uh, deliver me from my enemies. He says in one, uh, verse 134, uh, redeem me from man's oppression that I may keep your pre uh, precepts. So the word oppression here talks about cruelty, extortion. Uh, there's people around him that are uh, getting uh, deceitful gain off of him. Uh, and, and the psalmist reminds us that following Christ, uh, following the Lord is not without obstacles, right? It's not without uh, persecution and opposition. And, and unfortunately, uh, again, we, we think we're the ones that overcome it. We, we're, we think we're the ones that have to be strong enough. We're the hero of the story. We are not the hero of the story. It's not about you being brave enough, right? It's about the courage that the Lord gives you in order to overtake and uh, be delivered from your enemies. King David understood this in Psalm 69, verse 18. He says, draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of what? My enemies. David is crying out to the Lord for help because his enemies are overwhelming him. David knows that the only one that can rescue him is the Lord. The Lord is the true overcomer. And notice that the psalmist here in Psalm 119, he's not asking for deliverance for deliverance sake. He's asking for deliverance so that he can do what? He can keep the precepts of the Lord. He wants to remain faithful to the Lord. So we need the Lord to deliver us. We need the Lord to rescue us from our enemies. And then the fourth prayer request, he says, bless me with your presence. Bless me with your uh, presence. Verse 135, he says, make your face shine upon your servant 
and teach me your statues. This idea of uh, asking the Lord to, for his face to shine upon you is, is through the Psalms. We see it in Psalm 31, verse 16, Psalm 67, verse 1, uh, Psalm 80, verse 3. The roots go back to uh, God's instruction to Moses uh, to pray a, a blessing over his brother Aaron, who was the high priest. We see this in number 6, uh, verse 24 through 27. L- listen to the, and we sing a song about this, but this is where it comes from. Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his fi- uh, face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Uh, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name, and that's the important phrase here, my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So everything hinges on what? The name of the Lord, the character of the Lord, the faithfulness of the Lord, the goodness of the Lord. And you think about this for a second. What is the great blessing that the psalmist is needing? You know, think about the time. Is it the harvest? Is it the rain? Is it the, 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 the plants and all those things? Is, is it shelter? Is, it all the, or is that the greatest blessing? Now, those things are great. Don't get me wrong. But what is the greatest blessing? This idea of the Lord's uh, face shining on him talks about communion with God. The, the greatest need that we have is the presence of God in our life. You meet anybody in their darkest moment and you recognize, I, I really don't have a whole lot of words to say. I turn them to the word, but what they need most is the presence, right? They need the presence of the Lord. So the one who seeks to grow in their dependency on the Lord recognizes their need for God's grace power to overcome sin, deliverance over their enemies, and communion with the Lord. That is the great blessing that the psalmist is seeking. And then lastly, uh, the third characteristic, a deep sadness for those in rebellion. A deep sadness for those in rebellion. So the psalmist is looking out, he's seeing all these things, and he sees people that are rebelling against the Lord. And guess what? It grieves the spirit. Uh, Verse 36, 136, he says, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. The psalmist recognizes that not everybody's committed to the ways of the Lord, right? Uh, He recognizes that many around him are rejecting the ways of the Lord and he grieves deeply for them. There's a tender compassion here from the psalmist. It is is in a greater way, the tender compassion that the Lord Jesus has for those when he entered into Jerusalem. Look at Luke uh, 19 verses 41 through 44. The scripture says, and when he, speaking of Jesus, drew near and saw the city, talking about Jerusalem, he wept over it. Now think about the context. Jesus is going into the city, triumphal entry, right? Everybody is crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us, God saves us, right? It's the, it's the Super Bowl parade. And instead of Jesus celebrating, he's weeping over the city. Why? Because he knows that there are many, many who have rejected him. He goes on to say in verse 42, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. In other words, he's saying the Prince of Peace is here, and you've rejected him. But now they are hidden from your eyes. In other words, you praise me with your lips, but your heart is far from me, Right? Verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set your, up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, Jesus is prophesying two things here. In the immediate context, the short term, he's saying that in AD 70, that's what we know now, AD 70, Rome, the Roman Empire, the Roman soldiers go into the city of Jerusalem and guess what? They devastate it, right? They take it over. And ever since then, or even beyond then, you look at the Middle East today, Jerusalem, being attacked over and over again. There is no peace. The long term, though, is pointing to what? The second coming of Christ, when Jesus comes again. And to those who have chosen to reject the Lord on his terms, and that's important. Some people want to receive the Lord on their terms. That doesn't work that way. Those who reject the Lord on his terms will experience an eternity without peace. And the point is this. If you are in Christ... You are living your worst life now. The best is yet to come. Praise God for that. But for everyone who has denied Jesus Christ as their living Savior, 
They are living their best life now and the worst is yet to come. And that reality grieves the heart of the Lord. That reality grieves the heart of the psalmist. That reality grieves the heart of the apostle Paul. He says in Romans 9, verses 1 through 3, this is Paul speaking, just a Christ-like love for those who don't know him. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother. So he's talking about those of the Jewish faith, those who have not received Christ as their Savior, my kinsmen according to the flesh. You see the heart, the grief that, that somebody who's maturing in their faith has for those who are rebelling against the Lord. Oh, that we would have that type of grief for those who are rebelling against the Lord. But what about those who know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and they're rebelling too? That's possible, right? I mean, we see that all throughout the Old Testament specifically where God's people are grieving over the fact that God's people are sinning, remaining in sin. I, I think about Ezra, the prophet Ezra in Ezra 10, verse six. The scripture says, and Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went into the chamber of uh, Jehonan and the son of Elishabeth, and Elishabeth was the high priest, uh, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exile. So this idea of uh, eating no bread and drinking uh, no water, this is a very rare fasting, right? But he's grieved. And the scripture says that he's grieving over the faithlessness of the exiles. In other words, God's people were sent into captivity to the Babylonians because of their disobedience, but by the grace of God and the faithfulness of God, he redeems them, he removes them out of captivity, and what do God's people do? They go right back to the things that they were doing before, right? And that grieves the heart of Ezra. When you think about brothers and sisters in Christ that have chosen to rebel, does that grieve your heart? Does that grieve your soul? I mean, the picture is amazing. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Let that be the grief that is in our hearts. If you truly desire to grow in Christ, you will find that there will be a genuine love for God's truth, a desperate need for God's provision, and a deep sadness for those in rebellion. As you think about love for God's word, do you thirst for it? Do you, are you dependent on it? Is that what your soul longs for? And if it's not, be honest with the Lord. Again, we need the Lord to open our eyes. We need the Lord to reveal insight to us. Maybe there's a need for God's provision. Maybe you find yourself in a place, I, I, I need God's power, I need his grace in my life, I need deliverance from my enemies. Lord, I need your presence more than anything. And maybe this morning you find that there's tremendous grief in your soul over someone who has rebelled against the Lord. Either they've never received Christ as their savior or they are a brother and sister in Christ as far as you can tell, but they've chosen a different road. Man, go before the Lord, pray for them. Pray that God would give opportunity.